Okay. Luke chapter 23. We've come to the part in Luke's gospel where we're going to look at the death of Jesus. And if you read Luke carefully, this is where the whole story is headed. I mean, already in Luke chapter 9, it says that Jesus set his face on Jerusalem. And he's just, he's pointed, he's fixated. This is at the heart of his mission. Uh, Over and over again, he's saying, the Son of Man, referring to himself, he must suffer many things, he must die. And really, this is more than just what Luke's gospel points to, but this is the climactic event of the whole biblical story. In fact, the Apostle Paul, speaking for the church, says, this is our message. We preach Christ crucified. Now, here's what I want to ask as we look at this. What does this mean? What does Christ crucified mean to the world? Personally, what does it mean to you? Luke gives us some amazing details because we're going to hold this thing up like a diamond and just kind of turn it and and look at the details that Luke gives us that I think flesh out the incredible meaning of this event. We're going to look at it today, and then Lord willing, you guys will be here Good Friday as well, so it'll be a two-part thing. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. Luke 23, 8.57, if you have a Bible like mine. Then the whole assembly, namely the priests and the Levites, rose and led him off to Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man subverting our nation. He opposes the payment of taxes to Caesar, and he claims to be Messiah, a king. So Pilate asked Jesus, Are you king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. Then Pilate announced to the chief priests and to the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man. But they insisted. He stirs up the people all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee. He's come all the way here. On hearing this, Pilate asked if the man was a Galilean. And then he learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, and he sent him to Herod, who was in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased, because for a long time he had been wanting to see him. And from what he had heard about him, he hoped to see him perform a sign of some sort. He plied him with many questions. But Jesus gave him no answer. The chief priests and the Torah teachers were standing there, vehemently accusing him. Then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him. Dressing him in an elegant robe, they sent him back to Pilate. This is so interesting. That day, Herod and Pilate became friends before they had been enemies. Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers of the people, said to them, You brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. I have examined him in your presence, and I have found no basis for your charges against him. Neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us. As you can see, he has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will scourge him and then release him. But the whole crowd shouted, Away with this man. Release Barabbas to us. Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again. For they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. For the third time, 
Pilate spoke to them. Why? What crime has this man committed? I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I will have him flogged, scourged, and then release him. With loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified. And their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant their demand. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder. The one they had asked for and surrendered Jesus to their will. As the soldiers led him away, they see Simon from Serene, who was on the way in from the country and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. And then skipping down to uh, verse 32. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called Head Hill, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. And Jesus said, Father, Forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. And the people stood watching. The rulers even sneered at him. And they said, he saved others. Let him save himself. If he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine and vinegar and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And there was written notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you and I are under the same sentence. We are punished justly for what our deeds deserve. But this man is innocent. And then he looked at Jesus. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him. Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. And now it was about noon. The darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. For the sun stopped shining. The curtain of the temple was torn in two. And Jesus called out in a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he said this, he breathed his last. This is God's word. You can be seated. First thing I just want to um, highlight is that Jesus is arrested and he's brought to trial by who? Who's driving this? And I think this is important. It's basically the temple elites that consists of chief priests, priests, Levites, some Pharisees are also part of that whole conglomeration. But these are the religious temple elites of the day. And Pilate is a man who thoughtlessly has killed thousands, sent thousands to crosses. And yet Pilate insists three times that Jesus is innocent. In fact, he even pawns him off on Herod. Herod uh, gives Jesus a beating, but he too finds no fault in him. And it's like Pilate is pulling out all the stops to release Jesus. And the reason I want us to see this is because the question oftentimes arises, who killed Jesus? Who killed him? I'm going to tell you, it wasn't Romans. 
Pilate doesn't want Jesus dead. It's not Jews. Jews are all in bed sleeping. They just celebrated Passover the night before. This is early in the morning. They had four glasses of wine with that meal. They're sleeping, trust me. At the human level, those responsible for the death of Jesus are the temple elites. Because there's this massive collision that we've seen, especially in the last week of Jesus' life, this collision of two temples. And Jesus has become a threat to their whole slimy, man-exalting enterprise. But here's what we need to see even more than that. Jesus is not a victim. He is in complete control of absolutely everything that is happening to him. In John 10, he says this. He says, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have the authority to to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up. In fact, think Genesis 22. When Abraham takes his son up Mount Moriah. And he lays Isaac on that altar. And Isaac, of course, is a grown man by now. So Isaac is also laying himself willingly on that altar. It's the same thing. Yes, God is using this corrupt temple leadership to accomplish his plans. But this is God's plan from the very beginning. For God so loved the world that God gave up his son. This is God the Father taking his only son up the very hill that Abraham took his son up. And he's laying him down on an altar. And, and this is God's son laying himself down, willingly. We need to see that. But I also want us to see the venom of the most religious people of Jesus' day. They're not just shouting, kill him, kill him. They're shouting, crucify him, crucify him. Crucifixion was more than just a means of execution. Crucifixion was, was, was human torture. Rome, of course, didn't invent the crucifixion, but they're the ones that perfected it because to have a, an empire that is going to rule the world, uh, Rome came up with these methods of torture to instill uh, fear in the people that they ruled, and, and crucifixion became their go-to method. This is what they did. And so select Roman battalions called crucifixion squads were were trained in this art of torture. And they had this whole thing down to a science where they could literally uh, keep someone alive on a cross for up to six days. Or this thing could go quite fast in a matter of hours. Um, The way that they could control and manipulate this. And I just want you to see how, how they uh, performed a crucifixion. Um, I have PowerPoint on this. Um, that's how they would position the person. And they are positioning them in such a way that the only way the victim could have any chance of breathing is they'd have to pull themselves up with their hands and their feet in such a way so they could take a breath. And then they'd fall back down. And that's why they put the hands in the hand, or the nails in the hands and the feet. It sent shockwaves through the whole body just to breathe. Now, the way that uh, you could end this thing 
in just a matter of minutes is you could break the legs of the victim. Because really, this was death by suffocation. And the moment the legs were broke, now they can no longer lift themselves up to take a breath. The other way that they could make a crucifixion short or a matter of hours is they would scourge the victim first. And I want us to just take some of this in. Because this is how God is orchestrating every detail of the death of his son. Jesus said, I didn't just die, I came to suffer. And so what, what, what um, they would do, this, this crucifixion squad, uh, they had this person called a carnifix. A carnifix is Latin for butcher. Uh, the butcher would put their arms to a post, so they're in this helpless uh, position. And then they took what was called a flagrum. A flagrum was more than a whip, because in this whip, they had tiny pieces of bone and glass and stone and metal balls kind of interwoven so that when the whip came down on the back, it stuck, and then they'd yank it sideways, and they would just work it from the top of their neck all the way down to the, to the buttocks. And their goal is to get them one lash from death. I want us to know that Rome is not doing this to adulterers, thieves. They don't care about that stuff. They are doing this for one crime. You defy us in any way, and this is what we do to you. We crucify you. We torture you. In fact, this is, this is Rome's stake in the ground to the world to say to the world, world, you lose, we win, we own you, we dominate you. You defy us. This is what we do to you. And so really, the cross, something that we've turned into a religious symbol, symbol we, we, we forget that in Jesus' day, this is a political symbol like a swastika. To the average Roman in, in, in Jesus' day, the Latin word for cross is crux. Crux to a sophisticated Roman was a four-letter word. You, you didn't say crux in polite company. Crossroads. Cruxroads. Um, it, 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 it was a four-letter word. But I want you to see the audacity of the church because the early church took this four-letter word and said, this is our message. We preach Christ crucified. In fact, then they hijacked a word that was associated with Rome and the emperor's uh, gospel. Gospel is first a Roman term. To describe a world-changing event, usually unleashed by a Roman emperor. And they would send out their heralds and their evangelists going all throughout the empire to talk about the Pax Romana, the gospel of Rome. And the peace and prosperity that Rome brings. And the early church hijacks that word and says, uh-uh. Gospel. 
Our gospel is Christ crucified. And now here we are, back at the first question. How on earth is Christ crucified? A world-changing event. In fact, uh, Paul says this. Paul even gets at it in 1 Corinthians. He says, Jews demand signs. Greeks look for wisdom. But our message, we preach Christ crucified. Yes, it's a stumbling block to Jews. It's foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom. And the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. This is God's message, not just the church's message. This is God's stake in the ground to say to the world, world, this is how I win. This is how I rule. This is my king, and this is how he kings. And now our question should be, how? How does the shame and the humiliation of the cross, how is that a world-changing event? Well, let's uh, look at what Luke gives us because he gives us some wonderful details that I think help explain this event. In the first uh, detail, look at verses 16 through 25. And this is uh, Luke just giving us this detail of Barabbas. Barabbas is a famous prisoner. He's a zealot. He's a terrorist for the Jews. And he has come to this point where he's met his fate. His day has come. And and Luke describes all of this in such a way that, that we can hardly miss the point. Because Barabbas is guilty of the very crimes that they are charging Jesus with. Now I want us to think about those charges. Because the very fact that those charges of being a zealot and an insurrectionist are placed on Jesus is the very thing that causes Jesus to weep. And to say, oh, Jerusalem, oh, Jerusalem, you guys just don't get it. You don't see the kind of king I am and the kingdom I'm unleashing. And yet here it comes down to this. Either Barabbas dies or Jesus dies. In fact, the very charges that condemn Barabbas to death in this story are placed on Jesus. Barabbas' life is spared because Jesus' life isn't. Jesus is taking Barabbas' condemnation upon himself. And this is what Luke has been preparing us for for, for his whole gospel. This is the climax and and the focus of, of everything that he's laying out before us about Jesus. Because here's the bottom line, whether you know this or not, we are all Barabbas. We are all criminals condemned to die. Do you know that? 
Because if you don't, you're going to miss the meaning of the cross. As, uh, as N.T. Wright says, I, 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 he was, uh, I was reading him this week, his, his commentary on this very text. And he says, at this place in the story, we discover that Jesus comes to take our place under the condemnation for sins and wickedness, both great and small. He says, in the strange justice of God, who overrules the unjust justice of Rome in every human system, God's mercy reaches out where human mercy could not. Not only sharing, but in this case, substituting for the sinner's fate. Jesus hanging on that cross is Jesus in your place. Everything that we deserve is placed on Christ, and therefore, everything that Christ deserves is placed on us. In fact, notice the mocking. Not just that they mock Jesus, but all of them are saying essentially the same thing. Whether it's the criminals, whether it's uh, the priests, whether it's um, the soldiers that are, that are there, they're all saying... He saved others, but he cannot save himself. That is precisely the point. He can't save both himself and us. It's either Jesus or it's us. And that's the gospel. In fact, if you want a succinct meaning of the cross, it's this. Jesus Crucified is Jesus taking our judgment day. That's what's going on. And this isn't a, a new twist in the biblical story. This is what God promised in the very beginning. It goes all the way back to Abraham. When, when one day they decided to seal their relationship in a covenant. And in those ancient covenant-making ceremonies, they would literally sign their promises in blood... Animals would be cut in half with the blood flowing into the middle. And, and then each party would take off their sandals and walk through the, through the blood to say that if I don't keep my end of this promise, may I be cut to pieces as these animals are. And one day, Abraham says to God, God, you've made some amazing promises to me, but how can I know? And God says, Abraham, go get some animals. And Abraham knows exactly what to do with these animals. He, he knows God's saying, hey, we're going we're gonna to seal this thing in blood. He cuts them in half. The blood flows into the middle. And on this day, God came down. He walked in that blood. Not just once, but a second time. In other words, when it was Abraham's turn to, to, to put his feet in the blood, it's almost as if God says, Abraham, step aside. You can't do that. You step in that blood and you're sentencing yourself to death. And he's basically saying to Adam and to Adam's descendants and to the whole world, whether I fail, which we know God can't fail, or Abraham, whether you or your descendants fail, it's all going to be on me. And that's the meaning of the cross. It's the faithfulness of God to a covenant he made all the way back to Abraham. That when we fail, God says, our failures are on him. He did it. 
Another detail. Look at verse 44. It was now about noon. Darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon, for the sun stopped shining and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. What does darkness in the Bible symbolize? God's judgment. Listen to these texts. Joel 2. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Sound the alarm on my holy hill. Let all those in the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. And when it comes, it'll be a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness. Amos 5, woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. Will you really long for this day? Will not the day of the Lord be darkness, not light, pitch dark without a ray of bright, brightness? And still more from Amos. This, this text is stunning when you consider what's going on. In that day, declares the sovereign Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon. And I will darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your religious festivals into mourning. It's Passover. And your singing into weeping. And I will make that time like mourning for an only son. So darkness in the Bible is God's judgment. The great day of the Lord. I'm telling you, as bad as this crucifixion is for Jesus physically, it, it pales in comparison to what Jesus is really suffering, which I think begins when he's in Gethsemane, and he says to God in agony, in prayer, probably for hours, take this cup from me. And what's the cup? The cup is the cup that the Father places before the Son. It's the cup of all God's wrath for all sin. And he says, son, will you drink it? And after agonizing prayer, Jesus finally says, father, not my will, but your will be done. And the darkness now that, that, that comes upon Jesus is it's the absence of God. It's hell. Because hell is not so much a place. Hell is to experience God utterly forsaking us. It's, it's for God to just completely remove his presence. And see, we don't know that even though you may reject God, you may disbelieve in God, you may even have two fists towards God with just utmost rebellion tor towards him, uh, the fact of the matter is his providential care and grace still fills the whole world. Tim Keller, I love how he says this. He says, you could live your whole life in a cold ca cave, never see seeing the sun. And you could live there disbelieving the sun. You could be telling people the sun doesn't exist. But the fact of the matter, the only reason you're alive is because there is a sun. And the moment the sun would be removed, you would cease to exist. The sun just went out on Jesus. He is utterly cut off. His father is completely absent. And I, I want us to take, take this in as, as, 
and, and try to put ourselves in Jesus' shoes. Because from the very beginning of time, all Jesus has ever known is, is intimacy with his Father. I mean, throughout all time, the Father is pouring oceans of love into Jesus. And Jesus is pouring oceans of love into the Father. And, and now, in a moment, it's gone. Absent. He's experiencing hell. And because his relationship with the Father is infinitely more intimate, the hell he's experiencing is intimately that much greater. And some of you, I, I, I talk to you, and, and you still wonder sometimes, like, does God really love me? You say, there's no way that God could love me. Listen, your problem, if you're struggling with that, is not that you have too low of an opinion of yourself. You have way too low of an opinion of what Christ has done for you. He took your judgment day. He went to hell for you. Because he loves you. He loves you. Another detail. Look at verses 33 and 34. This is just absolutely stunning. When they came to the place called Head Hill, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. Crucifixion was done by the Romans, not just to inflict torture, but to utterly humiliate. A victim. So don't think that Jesus has a stitch of clothes on. Are you kidding? Romans crucified their victims completely naked. And that's why they are dividing up these garments. Also, don't put them high up on crosses as we sometimes see in movies. Romans crucified a victim at eye level with everybody else because they didn't want to give a victim, any kind of personal space up there. They wanted people to walk by eye to eye, face to face. And in all of this, the pain, the suffering, the humiliation, he prays, Father, forgive them. Forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. That is more than a prayer. That is a priestly prayer. This is intercession. For anyone to, to, to draw near to God in the ancient world, you needed two things. You needed a priest and you needed a sacrifice. You needed a priest who would pray, God, forgive them. Forgive them of their sins. Wash them. Cleanse them. And you also needed a sacrifice, something that could atone for you. Then you could draw near to God, but only get close. Jesus is a priest. And who is he priesting for? The ones who betray him, the ones who mock him, the ones who curse him, the ones who, who scourged him, who beat him, who put nails in his hands and his feet. 
If this isn't love, then nothing is. Charles Spurgeon says it well. He says the greatest act of love was that Christ looked down on his murderers, his betrayers, and those that abandoned him. And he just stayed there. And then he prayed, said Spurgeon, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And you see what this means? This means that Jesus loves us, not because we're so perfect and beautiful, but he loves us to make us perfect and beautiful. Because on the cross, Jesus is both priest and sacrifice, the one true priest and the one true sacrifice, putting those priests that are gathered around him, mocking him, totally out of business, making him obsolete. And if you want to know the power of this, look at verse 45. Jesus tears open the veil so that now we can come right into God and God can come right into us. And here we are today, and, and, and we still need the one true priest, and we still need a one true sacrifice uh, to draw near to God, and we have the perfect one. Listen to what Hebrews says, uh, and so, dear brothers and sisters, now we can boldly enter heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. By his death, Jesus opened up a new life-giving way through the curtain into the most holy place. And since we have a great high priest who rules over God's house, let us go right into the presence of God with sincere hearts, fully trusting him for our guilty consciences have been sprinkled with Christ's blood to make us clean and our bodies have been washed with pure water. We get to come right into God. God can come right into us. How do we respond to this? And see, I think this is why Luke uh, gives us this detail of the two criminals. Because at the end of the day, there, there are really only two ways to respond to Christ crucified. We're either going to love him or we're going to hate him. We're either going to bow to him or we're going to kill him. We're either going to follow him or we're going to reject him. There's no neutral ground with Jesus. Especially Jesus crucified. Where are you today? Don't be... Like it says about, and the crowd just stood there and watched like a cow, just staring. What does he mean to you? What does this mean to you? The one criminal joins all the mockers. That's, the, it's a, that, that's an easy thing to do. It's easy to join this world full of people who mock Jesus today. But the other criminal breaks rank. And I think he's the only person at the cross to verbalize the fact that he breaks rank with everybody else who's, who's killing him, mocking him, destroying him. And I think he breaks rank because he sees the love of God in the face of Christ. 
I think he breaks rank because he finally sees the one true priest who's now priesting for sinners, priesting on behalf of his torturers, priesting on behalf of his killers. He sees the one true sacrifice that God's king is not going to come and repair the world by being a zealot and and taking on Romans. He's going to do it by giving up his life. And he defends Jesus. And he looks at the guy mocking him and says, you know what? We're criminals. This man has done nothing wrong. This is the innocent dying for the wicked. And then he says to Jesus these awesome words. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Remember has connotations of of restore and resurrection. Jesus, would you remember me? Would you restore me? Would you resurrect me? In other words, Jesus, could you, could you take this wretched life and, and make this wretched heart beautiful? If you, if, if you can forgive all these people who are killing you and torturing you, you can forgive me. Remember me, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says, today, you'll be with me. And that man got to die with Jesus next to him, with him. I believe in that moment when Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. Heaven came down and filled that man's dying soul with life. And heaven can come down right now and fill your dying soul with life. It requires three things. Admit you're a criminal. A Barabbas. Wretched. Take in every drop of who Christ is and and what Jesus did for you. The shame, the humiliation, the, the suffering, the hell. He took your judgment day. And then come to him with nothing but need. With Jesus, all you need is need. Nothing in these hands I bring. Simply to the cross I'm going. Come to him. Bow to him. Surrender your life to him. And I promise you, heaven will come down. And glory will fill your soul. It's the meaning of the cross. world-changing event that changes you, changes me. Let's pray. And God, if we can't see our need this morning, then give us the guts to pray a dangerous prayer. That Jesus, you would show us our need. Because God, if we can't get past that, if we can't get past our very selves and take in the love and the power of the cross, open the eyes of our heart that we could see ourselves and that we could see you God in Christ, Christ crucified.